Hungry Trilobite Podcast would like to start by acknowledging these fine conventions. SoonerCon. Oklahoma's longest-running pop culture convention is ready to return in 2023. SoonerCon 31 will be held in Norman, Oklahoma on June 30th through July 2nd, 2023. Gaming, cosplay, autographs, and an art auction await. Visit SoonerCon.com for more details. The Hellmouth Convention where fandoms bleed together. Evoking the center of the mystical convergence, our event includes fandoms and travelers from all over the world. Like the Hellmouth itself, things gravitate toward it that you might not find elsewhere. The celebration is scheduled for June 9th through 11th, 2023, in Los Angeles, California. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. One of the reasons I do this show is to demonstrate how people like us, the fans, can take our creativity and take our fandom and build on it and become a part of the things we like. The guy coming on today is a great example of that. His name is Matthew J. Elliott. He's a writer for Rift Tracks. But it's almost an accident that I found him through Rift Tracks because I could have found him through any number of things that I find to be awesome. Let's get started right now. On tap today, we have Matthew J. Elliott. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing very well, Aaron. Thank you very much for asking me to join you. I am thrilled to do this. I, I've looked over what you've done. I've, I'm familiar with you from Rift Tracks. That's where I yeah. found your work. But like myself, you're the kind of person that just pursues what you like. You you chase the things that interest you, and you find a way to put it together in the end. Yeah, I've been I've been very very fortunate in terms of uh, the things that I've been offered, the things that I've gone after, and the th- and some of the things that I've been successful in going after. You're not always successful, but that's that's the business, you know. It is. I, for example, uh, you were a huge fan of Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And you, you published uh, for the Sherlock Holmes magazine. You've written that, That's how you got your start writing. Yes, that's right. And then you shoehorned that into writing for a Rift Track Sherlock short movie. Yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's a strange situation. I also, uh, I should mention, I host the film evening of the Sherlock Holmes Society of London once a year. So I don't live in London, but I get to go down there once a year and they book a room and we show, because I don't know whether you know this, but Sherlock Holmes movies are basically as old as cinema itself. So there are like the very first Sherlock Holmes movies about 19, 1900, so somewhere between 1900 and 1902. So there's plenty to go out there. So yeah, I, um, I originally wrote a Sherlock Holmes short story. This was while I was trying to get my English degree because I had always been a very bad student when I had been younger. I thought I'll get my English degree and then I can study and then I can start to be a proper writer. And it was while I was getting my English degree, which was at, at night school, that it was kind of fascinating. that The teachers were less interested in the subject than we were. And so there would be moments where evenings where half of the students would go out for a smoke and never come back and most of the time the teachers didn't show up either so it was kind of a bizarre thing and then one night I realized this is going nowhere turned over a piece of paper started to write a Sherlock Holmes story that was in my head uh finished off writing it at home sent it to the Sherlock Holmes magazine and, uh, and we went on from there. But you're absolutely right. My audition piece for riff tracks, although it wasn't my first riff for them, was uh, a treatment of uh, the Basil Rathbone movie Dressed to Kill, which was his very last movie and is one of about four of them that's in the public domain. Nobody's quite sure why of the 13 movies that he made, four of them are public domain, but they are. And, and that showed them that I could do what I could do. Fantastic. I'm glad they did. And one thing I love about Rift Tracks, and I'm a huge MST3K universe person. I like oh, all yeah. of their projects. But for me, mm-hmm. Rift Tracks was the point where they took the, excuse me, the, that's where they took the concept and they opened it up to the audience. They, they, they stopped using the strict formula established by the show. Yeah. And they started making, you know, just shorts or good movies let's not just do bad movies let's do good movies too and let's let the audience make their own riff tracks and it suddenly became this free-for-all which was perfect for the slightly not baby internet anymore era yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a it's a roast essentially of of your of whatever movie it happens to be. If it's a bad movie, then so much the better. But it can be good movies. You can do. They've done Casablanca. They've done Jaws. Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's a wonderful life. You if you can find you can find a way in. You can find the jokes. You can find the humor, and you can still you can still be something that you love. I mean, this is what I'm doing with the uh, with the Who riffs at the moment, which is something that I'm doing separate from uh, from riff tracks which is to riff, I'm going to try and riff every existing episode of classic Doctor Who. So if you go on YouTube, you should find uh, little trailers for that. Uh, and it can be, and obviously Doctor Who, like Sherlock Holmes, is something that I very much love. So yeah, it was, a, it was the right time, right place, and it was the right time for me as well. I just happened to, uh, to break in and be allowed in. Uh, that's the, uh, you know, the real joy of it for me, is the fact that these are truly nice people. You, you find... You make, you make different relationships through different companies and you'll find that there are different people who want different things from you. And you will find that there are some people who are reliable, some people who are not reliable, provided that you are reliable with them, obviously, if you, if you give them the goods. But there are still some people who I, you know, there was, there was a comic company that I wrote for uh, briefly. And the tip off should have been that when you Google their name, the first thing that came up was the name of the comic company and the phrase does not pay. So That is what you like to call a red flag. Yeah, it should have been. Yeah, that should have tipped me off. And there are uh, a few friends of mine who were also bitten by them, but have, but have, uh, probably been a little bit more uh, vociferous in their feelings about it than I have. It's just, uh, you know, it's just part of the learning process for me, as far as I'm concerned. Just don't do that again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and at least I can say those, those comic books exist, whether they are good or not. Yeah, and, and it was a chance for you to try a new project. It was a chance yeah. to, to get something else out there in the world. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, they exist. That's, that's the thing. Uh, the fact that I didn't get paid for them, that's too bad because that was definitely something that I was very interested in. I am very fond of currency. But mm -hmm. uh, it's, uh, you know, that was one of those things that didn't happen. So there are times when you sort of, you sort of become aware that people, there are certain people who are going to let you down, but there are also going to be certain people who are going to be very, very good to you and keep those ones as close as possible. So the Rift Tracks people have always been the nicest and the best and the kindest people. Uh, I love them all. I'm in regular contact with, uh, with Mary Jo and with Bridget. Uh, and I had a, a lovely email recently from, uh, from Mike Nelson regarding, uh, of all things, the book Three Men in a Boat by uh, Jerome J.K. Jerome. Uh, this came about because uh, we had done a riff, uh, myself, Ian Potter, and uh, MJ and uh, Bridget, of uh, the movie Last Woman on Earth, uh, a Roger Corman movie, with no the at the start of it. There's no, I don't know what, they didn't have the budget for a the. So it's just the last woman on Earth. And within it, I think there was just a, a moment where there were two men in a boat. So I thought, well, the obvious joke here is that this is like the prequel to Three Men in a Boat, the, the famous book by Jerome K. Jerome. And it was not one with which they were familiar. So that Christmas, I mailed a copy of the book to Bridget. And a couple of years later, I had this absolutely uh, lovely uh, email from Mike Nelson, who had, who had read the book and had not only immensely enjoyed it, but also felt a, a genuine connection with the author over the gap of, you know, a continent and also... A uh, hundred years, you know, he felt that this guy was of the same mind as he was, uh, even though you know he was now long gone from this world. And it was it was quite a lovely thing to uh, to receive his comments on it. For sure, and I will say my biggest surprise in discovering Rift Tracks as as the, as the years went on was mm. that you know if, at first you get used to the idea of the the regular three riffers being kind of a substitute for the mic and the, the puppets and i have found that the the riffs i enjoy the most these days the ones i look forward to the most are the bridget and mary joe ones yeah yeah I, those I mean, two ladies are so talented absolutely I mean, to be perfectly honest with you um it's not my place to say of course but i don't think they should really come under the banner of riff tracks presents i mean i uh, myself and ian certainly should uh cole and janet should because we work there right from the start with mst but janet but uh, bridget and mary joe have always been part of mst so uh you know i as far as i'm concerned they are riff tracks rather than riff tracks presents and yeah, no, they're they're amazing. They know exactly what they want as well. That is that is one of those the things that if I if I do something, if I write something, and it is not 
to their taste, not to their style, they'll come back and they'll tell me and, and I'll work it out for them and I'll make it work. And that's, and it's very exciting when I do something and it does work. And there are jokes where you think to yourself, There's a, not in a million years will they say that. And, it, and then it comes out and that's really satisfying. There was a really bizarre one in uh, another movie with no with no uh, the at the beginning of it. Woman who came back recently. Uh, uh, there was a, a movie where a housekeeper was constantly complaining about her arthritis, and the, just a moment where she receives a juicy piece of gossip and runs to the phone. And the only thing that went through my head was her saying, "Arthritis, don't fail me now." And I thought, but that that makes no sense. There's there is no. no world in which that makes sense. It's just funny sounding. And thank God they did. I, I even put a note into the effect. I know this doesn't mean anything, but I really think it's funny. So please. Fair enough. And I, <laughs> I mean, having I tried my hand at some amateur riffs here and there, and I've always wondered when you're sitting with the pros, when you're mm. doing the, this with people who have done it for decades. What's it like that first watch through the movie where how many jokes come out when you haven't even seen the movie before? Yeah, it's over the course. It's been about, I mean, it's been close to 15 years now for me for riffing. So I'm in a, I'm in a very good place with the riffing now. There are occasions where, you know, you in the past, you hit a line and you think, I know there's a space for a joke here, but what's the space? And then so you, you, know, you put it on pause and you go to the bathroom and you wash your hands and you dry a few dishes and then you go, oh, that's the joke. But now I tend to find that the first instinct is usually the correct one. But whatever it is that you see or, you, or your first thought is when you hear that line or see that gap or that opening, there's a joke there. It can be twisted. It can be made into something. It's malleable, but there is, but you just go with whatever your first instinct was, no matter how out there it is sometimes. Uh, but yeah, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. Uh, it was terrifying. My first uh, go through with uh, Bridget, which I think was on, uh, it probably was Last Woman on Earth. And we had uh, a meeting uh, over Zoom over it. I think this may have been pre-Zoom. It may have been pre-Zoom because Zoom really took off, of course, during uh, during COVID. And it was uh, whatever was uh, was going before that. Uh, and I couldn't make it work. And I remember holding up a piece of paper to the screen to say, saying, um, I don't know why this isn't working. Bear with me. And my daughter saying, you know, this computer doesn't have a camera. She's just looking at a blank screen now. That's uh, that's doing nothing. So um, I think we eventually did it over the telephone. Uh, but she's uh, she's very focused. She knows exactly what she wants, and she knows what works. I, you know, a lot of the time, I just hope for the best. Well, sure. I when I I mean, you probably appreciate cinema on, on its own basis quite mm. a bit. I mean, it's just when you riff movies, you have to love movies in the first place. Oh yeah, absolutely yes. Uh, and this is something that I've talked about a great deal with, uh, well, I say a great deal, but we've only actually met for once. I mean, I've only met the guys, the big three, on uh, on one occasion. But we did have uh, some very long talks about uh, about cinema, about uh, movies that were uh, due to come out, about movies that were, you know, uh, their favourites. Uh, Kevin talking about travelling the world, uh, which he described in a book that he wrote, uh, to various different cinemas to see uh, different movies under different conditions yeah i uh, the the prince of wales is it the prince of wales or the prince charles cinema i can never remember i think it might be the prince charles cinema in london which is where they did their live riffing show in england now five years ago to this day uh, as a matter of fact um that was where kevin dressed as a nun to see a screening of the sound of music and won best costume prize well i would give it to him for sure Absolutely. I think the beard really sells it. You couldn't not. Yeah. I mean, dead ringer for Julie Andrews. Yeah. And a beautiful singing voice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But he talks a lot about movies. He talks about his love of Japanese cinema. I think at the time it was because the, the movie The Great Wall had just opened with Matt Damon. And I remember Kevin telling me what a great fan he was of that particular director. And so he was surprised that, you know, this movie seemed to have been released in a way that was guaranteed that it was going to take a bath financially. When I said when I pointed out that it was only ninety minutes long, I remember everybody around the table going, "Well, that's not a good sign." When that book was came out, I ordered it right away. I as soon oh, yeah. as I got it, I, I I tore straight through it. I wrote to Kevin as soon as I was done, and just thanked him for writing it. And he he said his advice was, "If you like movies this much, I would suggest you make one." Uh, to which I will <laughs> say, I'm still working on it, Kevin, but it's it's the it's on the back burner. Just saying. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't know how other people can make movies. You know, when I when I I see anything, any any kind of visual art, I am amazed at the way that people that there is a director who is able to think in those terms of the way the visuals. I don't think I could even do it to set up a conversation the way that it would look realistic. It would look like something from the movie Things, mm -hmm. uh, which I watched last night, which is horrifying for all the wrong reasons. But, and then that's kind of what I'm thinking of right now. Is yeah. When you when you love movies and I'm sitting down with something new and I'm, I'm thinking one of the more bizarre movies they've done, say uh, a Manos or or mm. one of those types of movies where it's like, how does this even qualify as, as a, a movie? Yeah, uh, yeah, that's, that is, the, um, for instance, uh, yeah, Roller Gator is the one yes. that I usually go to. Uh, my, my, my description of it is it's barely a movie. Mm hmm. I spend the first spin through the movie just saying, what am I even looking at? My brain yeah. doesn't even work in the uh, as, to give a response. I'm in the freezer flea mode. How, yeah. is, is that normal? Uh, well, it's, for, for, for Roller Gator, it is startlingly normal. The number of times that I've seen on fan pages on, on Facebook, people saying, I'm watching Roller Gator, I'm going in now. And then 20 minutes later, nope, nope, can't do it. Can't do it. I'm leaving it. And I understand that, I do. And I remember when, because it is available to watch uh, for free on YouTube via uh, Rift Tracks have very generously put a number of their movies completely on uh, YouTube to watch. Uh, uh, classics like Rotor, for example. But I would absolutely say to people, don't go in cold to Roller Gator. Don't even watch it like second or third, maybe fifth down the line. Mm -hmm. Because nothing, whatever you do, if you do yoga, if you stretch, if you go for a long walk, if you stay hydrated, it won't matter. This is, the only thing that makes this a movie is the fact that it has a movie star's brother in it. That's mm -hmm. the closest thing to any kind of uh, recommendation for it. It's astonishing. And that's something I tell people who are diehard fans of this idea of, of MST3K or Rift Tracks or whatever, don't push newbies onto the, the iron classics because yes. it is so far removed from anything they know. If they like movies and they've seen maybe a Godzilla movie, show them that. Or if they like cheesy Bond movies, show them Operation 0007. Show them yes. something it's close to their existing palette yeah yeah there's yeah there's some things that are just too out there i mean uh, for instance the movie things which is uh or even winter beast which are again it, it's barely a movie what what the hell even is this it seems to have been made either over the course of one night with like a ton of amphetamines or over the course of many many years with no clear idea of where it was going how it began or how it's even going to finish and so yeah, those yeah, yeah. So those those are not the movies to go into cold. Absolutely. No, no. That that's for the people who have who are looking for that weirdness, that that pop of I didn't know this even existed because <laughs> there are times you have want to take something off the shelf and say I can prove this exists. I've seen it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, for instance, um, I did. I wrote some riffs for Bridget Mary Jo's. Um, I can never quite remember the title of it. Is it, is it Earth Angel? I think it's. I think we get keep getting the title confused with with it being called Teen Angel, but it isn't. It's actually called Earth Angel, uh, which was a TV movie with a post Return of the Jedi uh, Mark Hamill playing a high school student, uh, and Eric Estrada as well playing the school bully, and Roddy McDowell as the uh, the principal. Uh, and it's about a girl who uh, dies in the 1950s and then comes back as a ghost later on, um, and. Again, extraordinary, but it's actually my sister-in-law's favorite movie. She used to rent that out from Blockbuster back in the 80s on a regular basis. So I can't even really bring myself to tell her that it's Rift because I think it will break her heart. People would take that personally. And yeah. I, that's the thing. It's like you're, you're riffing it out of love, if not for the specific movie, out of the love for cinema itself. Yes, absolutely. 100%. I have, you know, I mean, it's a perfectly serviceable TV movie. It's not the, not by any means the worst that I have ever seen. Um, it's fine, you know, and, and also it's always nice to see Roddy McDowell in anything. He always, he always gives good value in whatever he's in. Although I did recently see him in uh, Legend of Hell House, and I think that might be his career best performance. I think that's, it's not necessarily a great movie. 
Uh, it kind of falls down in the in the last ten minutes, but he gives really an absolutely stupendous performance in it. And I and I love Roddy McDowell. You know, I I would love to have seen him play Sherlock Holmes, for example, but sadly he never did. In an earlier episode, a few weeks back, mm-hmm. I uh, interviewed Shyla Adante, who worked on uh, the Christmas Dragon, which was in season thirteen of MST3K. Yes, yes. And I'd like to say to her, because it was the, one of the, I think it was the first time I talked to somebody who was in an MST3K movie project as it was being made for MST3K. It was a unique experience. I'm like, I, I just have to say, I respect the fact that the movies I'm watching at some point in time, somebody sat down and thought this would be a great idea. This yeah, was a sincere but, effort. And that's, well, that's notable. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I agree with you. There are so many times that I become frustrated with this attitude that uh, with whatever it is, a, a big budget movie that just doesn't come off. For example, a, a good idea, because I'm looking right at my DVD shelf right at the moment, is uh, The Mummy with Tom Cruise. People thought it would be a good idea. Tom Cruise has got a great track record. Millions went into it. It didn't work in a, in a big way. So to the extent that the cinematic universe that they were attempting to carve out uh, doesn't have so, but you will see like hundreds of videos explaining why it doesn't work. Well, there were a whole bunch of people who are professionals in their craft who were working on this with the absolute intention that it would and should work. And uh, finally, it's it ultimately comes down to the tastes of the public at any given time. I mean, for, weirdly enough, the, that particular film, The Mummy, has found a niche for itself on uh, th- streaming services. I believe that it actually uh, has made back a lot of money via streaming. But at the time, it just wasn't so. But that was not for a desire on the part of everybody who was involved in it. And nobody can uh, can question uh, their professionalism to uh, to make that happen. Indeed. And we can look at, I think of so many movies in the 90s that were comic book based, especially the early 90s, where it was a matter yeah. of, let's just grab any weird character that we can get on the cheap. Things like The Shadow, things like, you know, Blank Man being another example, or, or just yeah. like they just had to make some movie and it was cheap and easy. And people were like, this is these movies were caroled as being dumb. <laughs> and now that's like 95% of Hollywood's budget is making oh, comic book movies on definitely. anything. I mean, yeah, I mean, Phantom and Rocketeer and the, uh, the Shadow were both, uh, were all of them, I think, very much ahead of their time. Steel. They were ahead of the curve. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, the original Punisher with Dolph Lundgren. Mm-hmm. An incredibly violent movie, by the way. Mm-hmm. It's an astonishingly violent one. I remember an interview with uh, Stan Lee around about the time when there were there were a few uh, Marvel movies out, and he was kind of baffled by the fact, but not not in a bad way, because he was at least happy that one of the movies worked. Was that um, the Punisher movie with Dolph Lundgren and the Captain America movie with Matt Salinger? which you might remember. I don't know whether you've seen that one. Uh, both came out at more or less the same time. And he said, I read the script of the Captain America movie and it works absolutely on paper. But as a movie, it just didn't work. But the Punisher seemed to. That, so, you know, again, it's not for the, not without, uh, not without good intentions. It certainly had a really good red skull in it. Yeah. Uh, it's, just, it's just a shame that uh, he only keeps the makeup on for the first like 10 minutes of the movie. There's so many cases where you can go back and say, what if this movie that was made way back when was tried again today? Maybe mm. the audience is ready for it. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I, I am saying absolutely a lot, aren't I? But I'm, I just find that you're so terribly agreeable, Aaron. Um, it's, <laughs> I've been called worse. <laughs> Haven't we all? You should, you should check my YouTube comments. Um, yeah, it's... Um, what the hell was I going to say? Yes, uh, a couple of years ago, um, probably longer, actually, because it's now... It's, COVID changed everything, didn't it? It's made, it's made the measurements of periods of time so what so much different, so much different now. You have to think to yourself, oh, you have to throw in a year to maybe a year and a half because of COVID as well. So it didn't start, didn't happen when I thought it did. It happened two years before that. Uh, but I went to a screening of Superman the movie. Took my daughter with me. Uh, the original 1978 version. The guy. It was introduced by the guy who had played the teenage Christopher Reeve, who did not grow up to look at all like Christopher Reeve. Um, but I wasn't sure how my daughter would react to it. But she, as a huge Marvel movie fan, she saw a lot in it to love and said there was there was way more humor in this than I thought I was. There was a lot, a lot of Marvel sensibilities about it. And she said the only thing that I thought was weird was the whole sequence at the beginning with Terrence Stamp as General Zod being banished to the Forbidden Zone. She said in a Marvel movie, 
that would have been the post-credit sequence. Mm-hmm. And I said, you're, abs- you're absolutely right. That's the, pretty much the only thing that would have been different was that you would have shifted that to post-credits. Uh, and uh, and in, other, in every other respect, it's a perfectly serviceable movie for today, with, uh, you know, obviously with uh, better special effects. That movie is one that I cannot talk about objectively because I love it so much. Oh, me too, me too. And I love the fact that we have now uh, recovered this. Is it like, it's close on four hours, isn't it? The TV version that was shown in the uh, uh, in the late 70s, on uh, which was shown over two nights on TV. This was something that was done a lot with movies around about that period. They did it with uh, Star Trek Next Generation with a really bizarre cut that had uh, unfinished special effects in it. They did it with the uh, the 70s King Kong with uh, Jeff Bridges in it that was, show- again, shown over two nights as like a three-hour cut of the movie. And, I th- and there's, a, there's a much, much longer cut, which is mostly Smallville stuff, uh, of Superman the movie, which is now available on Blu-ray as well. So, yeah, I, I, I absolutely love that film. I adore it. I have so many, me- I have a, an abiding memory of seeing it for the very first time in 1978 at the cinema. And this was back in the day when you could go to the movie theater and just walk in when the movie was already on and then just stay to the next showing to catch up with what you missed at the beginning. Because mm-hmm. I think I think Krypton's already on its way out by the time I got in. Like, like the fact that when I saw Star Wars for the very first time, we were up to... Um, uh, Princess Leia's hologram, help me Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope, at the time we got into the cinema and we just stuck around to watch the beginning of it again. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those movies where I actually feel like this was where superhero cinema started, where we it actually, because yeah. I mean, and I'm a huge fan of the George Reeve TV show. Yeah. I've seen I'm that either. back and forth. Yeah. Yeah, and also the, also the Kirk Allen serial as well. Yes. Is, is, there's a, a lot to love in that. Kirk Allen is great. I actually love the gimmick of him becoming a cartoon when he flies. There's a, she's um, the Lois in that. Now, that's the actress who later played Lois on TV. Am I right? Yes. I, I get I get yes. confused. Uh, but but I, I actually like her better in the Superman serial. The second Superman serial, Atom Man meets Superman, kind of falls to pieces. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, there is so much to love in that. And I... I yeah, I, I, I know exactly what you mean. It's it's almost like this was the perfect starting bar, jumping off point for superhero movies, and it's kind of a shame that it wasn't. Yeah, and and I, I love those those shows, but what the point I was getting at was mm. the, with the Superman movie, this is the first time you believe he's flying. Yeah. This is the first time where, I mean, and, and with all due respect to the earlier Lois Lanes, when he falls for Margot Kidder, you believe he's falling for her. He's not yeah. just having a little fun with her or, you know, playing a little, like, no, no, he is in deep with her. You see the human side of him. There's so much that starts there that wasn't there before. Yeah, and it's and, and so much of it is down to Christopher Reeve. Yes. It's, not, it's not so much a sense that he can make, you believe a man can fly, it's that you will believe Christopher Reeve is both Superman and Clark Kent, mm-hmm. uh, and that he can convincingly be both of them with just a change of his hair and a pair of glasses, and you will think they are two different people. And yeah, he brings to it a, it's a strange word to use, bearing in mind that Superman is Kryptonian, but a humanity. See, people are, uh, writers are always struggling with Superman. Well, what's his weakness? He can't be hurt, he can't be hurt. Of course he can be hurt, because he feels. Mm-hmm. Superman is a friend to all. He loves, he feels, that's where his weaknesses lie. And that's where, of course, Lex Luthor gets him in the movie by knowing that he can fire missiles at two separate uh, locations. And, uh, you know, Superman will be then faced with a real dilemma. Uh, and and it, he makes you, Christopher Reeve was so 100% committed to that performance that it's, uh, it's, it's really, he's Oscar worthy. It's such a shame that movies like that, as a rule, don't win the Oscars or don't even get consideration for them. Mm-hmm. And, it's, it's one of those cases, like you said before, it's a shame that that wasn't the beginning of the, the comic book movie era because there were so many things that could have happened as a result. And now I'm just geek speculating here, but I think I'm on solid ground. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there was, a, I mean, there was a certainly at least a Batman treatment that was written by John Mankiewicz, who did uh, most of the rewriting on uh, Superman the movie. I mean, you know, he gets credited to, I'm never quite sure how to pronounce his name, Mario Puzzo, is it, who wrote The Godfather? But in fact, the majority of, this, of the script work that was done on it was done by John Mankiewicz, who writes very good villain. Uh, I have some issues with uh, the Bond movies that he that he uh, he scripted, but never with the villains. He writes really good villain. And he certainly he certainly delivered for, uh, for Lex Luthor in Superman. 
And uh, I remember reading an interview with him where he said years later, he was booking into a hotel and he heard a voice behind him say, it's amazing that those legs can generate enough, and that brain can generate enough strength to move those legs. And turned around and it was Gene Hackman all those years later, remembering the, uh, the line that he delivered uh, to describe Otis. <laughs> I think one of, the, one of my big regrets about, uh, about the Superman Returns is that they didn't have John C. Riley playing Otis. That seems yeah. like a given. Seems like a given to me. I could see that for sure. As Superman Returns was another one of those movies that just wasn't at the right time. But maybe in reverse, yeah. it was a little too late. Yeah, there's a, a little bit of both. I mean, it's, it's kind of, there's a weird trilogy of the original Superman movie, uh, for my preference, the longest cut available, uh, the, Donner, the Donner cut of Superman 2, which is as close to, obviously it's not perfect, but it's as close to what we should have got or what we would have wanted to get as possible, and then Superman returns to round it off, is the closest you can get to a satisfying uh, trilogy of those movies. And, and, and uh, you know, when you see what, what became of the series as it went on, and in particular, if you happen to watch the deleted scenes from Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, oh my God. I don't hate Superman 4 for what it is, Mm. but it's definitely a considerable step away from the first two movies. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, again, made with the best of intentions by exactly. Christopher Reeve. I, I remember him appearing after it was, about a year after it was released, appearing on a British chat show and saying to the audience, and specifically to the kids, I'm sorry that you got ripped off, because he was promised a lot more, particularly in terms of budget, mm. than what happened, because it was Golden Globus, who were these two guys who had bought Canon movies, mm -hmm. and it was it was like a, it was like a wild ride with the movies that they made at that time of whether the you know what the size of the budget was going to be at any given time it's one of the reasons why spider-man uh has become this rights nightmare because they had the rights to spider-man during the uh the 1980s or the early or the early 90s uh for a movie that never got made uh and i remember reading about they also made the uh, the masters of the universe uh movie and there's all kinds of uh, again, the budget just goes up and down during the shooting of it, and the makers are told that you can't have anybody dying in it because we're trying to tie this into a, chill, a kid's property, and then the next thing is, okay, well, the kid's property isn't selling very well, so kill as many people as you like, really. And uh, uh, in, in the end, Golden Globus was basically more, it, it seemed like they were almost exclusively Charles Bronson action movies, the sort of things that these days would go straight to DVD or straight to streaming but they seem to make uh, at least one new Charles Bronson action movie about every six months, and it will be a canon movie, and it will be shown at my local cinema, which just happened to be owned by Golden Globus. Are you familiar with the work of Austin Trunick? I don't believe so, no. Tell me. He is an author who has created a hugely comprehensive guide to canon's back catalog. I know the book. I know the book. Okay. Yeah, I, okay. I don't have it, but I'm aware of its existence. Yes. Oh, yeah. He was on the show. You may want to check that episode. I mean, oh, I shall. this is this is definitely up your wheelhouse. I'll even send you a link <laughs> after we're done here. Please. Please for do, sure, yes. For sure. Uh, yeah. And it's, it, the, the one thing we'd like to talk about when, when we were on is that that was such a strange and, and unique era in a good way of film mm. culture, because that was the point where movies were being produced in a very high volume because yeah. video had just really started to boom. And so it wasn't just movies you could show in the theater, it was movies you could show in the theater or on TV or on tape or on Laserdisc. And it yeah. was a case of, we have a bigger audience because there's more places to watch movies. Yeah, and there were certain people who would become stars just by virtue of the fact that you saw their names everywhere on, uh, uh, you know, on uh, blockbuster shelves. I never saw a single movie with Bud Spencer and Terrence Hill, but my God, I know those names from like a hundred different movies. Uh, and the same with Cynthia Rothrock until, uh, until Rift Tracks. You know, there are certain names that uh, Don the Dragon Wilson for it as well, that I like that. But I remember, but, but uh, I mean, Golden Globus began kind of with the best of intentions. I remember the, uh, read, reading a story about how they brought Billy Wilder in to, uh, to discuss uh, the possibility of him working for them. And they said to him, the, the first thing they said to him was, uh, can you give us a list of the things that you've accomplished in cinema? And he replied, you first. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, as Billy Wilder would and should. Uh, make, uh, maker of one of the most uh, underrated Sherlock Holmes movies, The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes from 1970 with uh, Robert Stevens. Okay. As it's, an, it's another famous, it's kind of like a, a famous unloved child because um, 
it was made to run at an extraordinary length, uh, probably something close on four hours. Uh, and then for whatever reason, supposedly with uh, Wilder's agreement, but actually not, I'm told by somebody who, who has had met Billy Wilder, it was then cut down to two hours. So there's a ton of material that doesn't exist. If you buy the DVD or the Blu-ray, uh, most of the, that missing material, it, you will either get sound but no picture or picture but no sound. And, and the truth is, all these decades later, people, people have been wondering, what would this movie have been like if we'd have had these missing sequences back in? And the truth is, probably not as good. So it's actually wildly the cut that we've had all these years is the best possible version of it. And, uh, and we didn't realize it until we saw what, what it could have been. Getting back to Sherlock Holmes, mm. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you as much of a fan as you are. And I, I am a very surface level Sherlock Holmes fan. So yeah. I'm, I'm coming to an expert here. But with the Sherlock Holmes stuff just now hitting public domain, literally, with yeah. this year how is that going to change the map because we've already had so many projects what's next in, in many ways it won't change very much at all because what we're talking about hitting the public domain is just the last two volumes of sherlock holmes short stories uh the only the, so the only problems that that has ever caused is in terms of the fact that anything that specifically references events in those two those last two volumes so for instance the last two volumes uh, are called His Last Bow and The Casebook of Sherlock Holmes, and both of them have stor short stories within them that are set within Holmes's retirement period. We, uh, prior to that, it's all Baker Street Adventures. Now we acknowledge that Holmes has retired. So if you make a movie, as uh, happened a few years ago, the movie Mr. Holmes with Ian McKellen, and it's set during Holmes's retirement, then that causes a problem. It doesn't cause a problem in the UK because all of uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's works go into the public domain 70 years after his death, regardless. So we've had them in the public domain for quite some time. But it's those two volume, those last two volumes, they do cause problems for the United States. And so in those instances, there will, be, there will have been cases of where money has had to have been paid to someone in order for this, uh, this to be released and distributed in the United States. And there was also a very strange situation as well, that um, back in the 1950s, there was a television series, which again is now in the public domain, uh, which was shot in France, but actually made for American television, with an actor called Ronald Howard uh, playing Sherlock Holmes. And it actually only officially adapted one of the Sherlock Holmes stories, but Sheldon Reynolds, the producer, used that as an argument that he had the, held the rights, the film and TV rights to Sherlock Holmes uh, ever since then. And even his widow, I think until very recent date, has, has tried to use that lever over other productions, the BBC Sherlock and uh, also the Robert Downey Jr. movie. Uh, but to be, to be entirely frank, it will make surprisingly little difference. Uh, I think the only, th the only thing is now is that if you, it, probably there will be less esteem attached to saying this production has the, uh, the blessing of the Conan Doyle estate because it is no longer required. That's, that's about, that's about the, the, the top and the bottom of it. It would be nice to think that Robert Downey Jr. would, uh, would you know, finally get to make another Sherlock Holmes movie, but it's getting close on 10 years now, and I'm, uh, I'm really not enthusiastic that it's going to happen. I was a big fan of that particular style of those movies. Mm. And so I that does pain me quite a bit that he didn't follow up on that with another. Yeah, and it was a huge relief to me at the time because when the uh, the movie was, uh, prior to the movie being released, prior to it even being made, I had been uh, snuck a copy of an early draft of the script. Uh, and this was prior to the involvement of Simon Kinberg who is mostly associated with a lot of uh, superhero movies, including, I believe he directed the last uh, unfortunate X-Man movie. Uh, but uh, I, having seen what the original draft contained and what Kinberg brought to it, which gave me such a tremendous sense of relief when I sat down in the movies and in the first five minutes of the film thought, oh, it's going to be okay. It's mm -hmm. going to be fine. Uh, and, and so I cannot, uh, you know, I, I cannot praise him enough for, for what he brought, brought to save that screenplay based on what I originally saw and read and thought, oh my God, this is going to be awful. And, and maybe as a fan, because Sir, uh, Sherlock Holmes is so old at this point as, as a, mm. um, an IP, 
and we have things that we love now that are just starting to show their age. They're starting to really grow, like things like Star Wars. Yeah. Which, yeah. It's, it's now 50-ish years old, if I, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Uh, so where are we going from here? I mean, is, is this, can we, can we, uh, do you think that at some point Sherlock Holmes and, and Star Wars could be watered down to the point where they're just not fun anymore? Or is this just like, we have the biggest playground in the world, let's just keep having fun for the next century? Uh, I haven't seen anything that suggests to me that um, watering down, to that I haven't seen anything that's been so watered down that it's been entirely unrecognizable as uh, either Holmes or Star Wars yet. So maybe, I mean, so a, lot of, a lot of the new Star Wars material seems to be very nostalgia driven. And I love that, but maybe that is why at the same time, I'm so resistant to Andor because it is something new and it scares me. Um, but, uh, but yeah, a, a lot of the home stuff that is coming out now in, uh, in, in the East, uh, Japan is making some really, really entertaining uh, Holmes movies and TV series. There was a, an absolutely fantastic series called uh, Miss Sherlock from about five years ago. That I, I know that you know the the BBC's Sherlock series made Benedict Cumberbatch a star around the world, but it deteriorated very, very quickly, uh, almost because of the fact that it, uh, it latched onto its fan culture and started to be more about making the show for the fans than making a good show. Uh, but Miss Sherlock just knocks it out of the park. If you can track that show down, it is so, so good. And more recently, there's been another show called Sherlock Untold Stories, which again is, uh, is, is tremendously entertaining. So I think there's still hope for them. It's interesting, uh, when we talk about uh, things starting to age, I'm, I'm watching a lot of... Um, videos of reaction videos on on youtube it's become a real a real problem for me of people watching the things with which i am over familiar uh but that they are seeing uh for the first time for instance there's one of the uh, a lovely texan lady called uh, ashley burton watching superman the movie for the very first time and her reactions are fresh uh, she knows nothing of it she only knows christopher reeve from the fact that she'd seen him previously in a, another film that she'd reacted to which was somewhere in time um and there are two guys who are watching all of the original 1960s Star Treks. And it is a kind of me watching it through fresh eyes, getting to see them coming through it with no expectations whatsoever. They've never seen it. They're not even sure what it is. They think it's a half hour show when they first start watching it. And then that first show, first feeling of, oh, okay. No, that was, uh, that, was, that was not what I expected. And now we're like three years in and we're into the dreaded third season, which starts with Spock's brain. I'm thinking, okay, this is, this is only going to go downhill. And hearing one of the guys go, I've heard what people have said, but I don't care. I just want to be with my friends again. Oh, you know, and that's that stuff. In, in a way, I believe, I truly believe this, that the, the original Star Trek has now, I mean, obviously there's a lot of 60s attitudes that we think, oh my God. Uh, I, I wish they hadn't, but I think the attitudes and the style of the early seasons of, say, The Next Generation are more visibly dated than 1960 Star Trek. I can completely agree with you on that. <laughs> Thank and God. I, yes, no, I'm, I'm a huge fan. And I, I will actually, people will talk about how early Star Trek is dated and cheesy and they make jokes about Kirk sleeping with everybody. And I will say, have you actually watched the show? Yeah. Because and, and while there's a nugget of truth in everything you just said, you will be surprised at how good the writing is mm -hmm. and how yeah. great the drama holds up and how relevant the stories are. Yeah. So in fact, yesterday, these two guys, they go under the name of Target Audience. Uh, watched uh, one of one of an episodes that I really never considered to be particularly remarkable, uh, which is the one with the uh, the alien called the Medusa that lives inside the box, and I think it's called "Is There in Truth No Beauty?" And I've always thought of it as a very meh episode, but the the sheer enjoyment from it that they that they got out of it to to the extent of saying this may be our favorite Trek episode ever is just amazing to me, you know, and makes me think to myself, I need to I need to revisit these things. Yeah, and like I will stress to people, they went out of their way to get the best science fiction writers of the time. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, they, yeah. They made it a priority to use what were then movie quality effects on TV, which was a budgetary no-no, but they yeah. did it because it was what yeah. they had to do. So that translates 50 years later. 
Yeah, and people don't realise. I mean, I, I have nothing but regard for Shatner. I know I know to a lot of people, he's kind of a living joke. He's not to me. He always brings value in everything. He always brings complete commitment to whatever he does, uh, even if it is to spoof himself. Uh, recently, a few years ago, he appeared in Britain on a, a satire TV quiz show called Have I Got News For You, uh, where they have like rotating hosts like they do on Saturday Night Live. So he knew what was expected of him. He knew he was expected to bring the Shatner, and he brought it to that. But if he has to do a serious role, he will do it. Uh, uh, I have a very fond memories of, there's a uh, horror, movie, horror TV movie called Something Like the Horror at 37,000 Feet. It's a very similar title to uh, the Twilight Zone episode that he's in. But it, uh, it's round about the time of uh, disaster movies and also of religious horror movies like The Exorcist. And it's kind of a blend of the two of those with uh, some sacred stones being moved, uh, monoliths being moved on the plane. And I remember them dripping green goo from them and uh, Shatner playing a, a, a priest along the lines of uh, Gene Hackman in... Um, uh, Poseidon Adventure, and he absolutely brings it. The commitment to it is is there. And I was very fortunate uh, a few years ago to meet um, an actress who was aware of Shatner uh, on his way up when he was still a stage actor, and when he was considered hot, 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 he was the new thing. He was, uh, you know, this young Shakespearean actor who was uh, was was really being talked about for the degree of commitment that he brought and the energy and the, just the passion that he brought to everything. And, and we tend to forget that about him now. Oh, I've lost you. No, no, I'm here. I'm here. Oh, um, uh, yeah, we talked about William Shatner and I would be remiss if I didn't go ahead and ask you this. You, have you seen the Batman Two-Face movie? Yes. Okay, I, because if you didn't know that Adam West and Bat William Shatner were in a Batman movie together, I, I would have to show you this right away. Oh, no, but no, 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 believe me, believe me. I have. A th I mean, there was a there was a Harlan Ellison going back to writers who wrote, wrote on Star Trek. Harlan Ellison did write a treatment for a Two Face script for the original '60s TV show, which never happened, and it was released as a uh, as a comic book a few years back. Uh, and the illustrations in it, if I'm thinking correctly, they, it makes it pretty clear that they were looking at like maybe Dean Martin for Two-Face. I had heard a young Clint Eastwood would have done it. Ah, interesting. Um, the act, I wish I could remember the actor who played him in the recent, um, those recent HBO uh, radio shows. A very good actor who really brought something different to the role of Two-Face. Uh, and they're very, very peculiar, very, but very, um, very striking uh, audio uh, depictions of, uh, of Batman. Have you heard them? No, I have not, and I'm very interested. Okay, HBO have done these things. They've done two seasons of it now. Jeffrey Wright is the voice of Batman. Uh, I, I think you can actually watch them on HBO, but all you will see is an old tiny radio, and then it plays the show. Uh, and the show features, uh, they will have like regular commercials in the middle of it. So for instance, in the first, in the second episode, I think there is a wonderful uh, public service announcement uh, for Gotham teens, uh, warning them against the dangers of taking scarecrow drugs. So, for, you know, being being staying on the street narrow when you're in high school, kids, uh, and and a lot of uh, a lot of SNL actors, which seems to suggest to me that it's uh, it's probably recorded in New York. So, uh, Keenan Thompson plays Commissioner Gordon because, oh. of course, he does. Uh, Melissa Villasenor is Dick Grayson, and um, Seth Meyers plays uh, a guy who's some sort of late night TV host in Gotham. So I've heard an episode where the, the, just the first 15 minutes of it is him, just him going around the streets of Gotham, asking people their views on the Batman and eventually speaking to a, a poor little boy on, on, uh, on crutches and saying, you've got the real Gotham spirit kid before realizing he's actually being held up by the kid. <laughs> that is awesome. I'm going to have to look into that for sure. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. No problem. It's a terrific show. Like I, I could go on about this all day and knowing that you're tricky makes me want to have a conversation about just that. Oh, but absolutely. I, yeah. I don't want to wrap this up before I give you a chance to let people know where they can follow your adventures on the internet and find more of your work. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I have a few things here. Uh, for instance, uh, there are, I wrote a couple of books, which were official spinoffs from the movie Big Trouble in Little China. So I did two of those, Big Trouble in Mother Russia and Big Trouble in Merry Old England. If you visit, I have also a radio script writer, mostly for American radio. So if you were to visit the website, harrynile.com, Harry Nile is the name of a, a recurring 
uh, radio detective who's been on the air since the 1970s, created by Jim French, but I uh, write all of the shows now. I am the um, in-house writer for Imagination Theatre. Uh, you'll be able, I've written something like 391 plays at last count. Uh, you'll find a ton of them there to download. You can also visit the Imagination Theatre page on YouTube, which regularly updates with brand new shows once a week. Um, I am the creator of a few of the shows that I do, I do write further adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Also, uh, the creator of Murder and the Murdochs, which is a comedy mystery series starring uh, Cynthia Lauren Tweez, who you probably know as um, uh, Julie or Cruise Director from The Love Boat. That uh, is, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also, hang on, I was trying to think. I've done a few uh, Doctor Who audios for a company called Big Finish. That one is signed by Sophie Aldred. Uh, Ian Potter wanted to, uh, got her to sign it. He wanted her to write, what is this shit on it? But she wouldn't do it. Um, <laughs> and in addition to that, I mentioned before the Who riffs. Uh, you can find me on Patreon, and I do, every week, I do a riff of uh, a classic 1960s, 1970s, 1980s Doctor Who episode. I've done uh, close on about 40 of them now, and I've got like 50 years worth of material to go at, so it should keep us going for a while. Everything you just mentioned is going to be available in the show notes of this on my website, aaronbossig.com, so people will have a direct link right to everything they can look at. Matthew, oh, thank you, you so much for being here. I really do my appreciate pleasure. it. It is my pleasure. You're welcome back anytime. Oh, I would love to. I would love to. I would love to come back and talk Trek, talk Star Wars, talk Superman the movie until the cows come home. Let's make that happen. Yeah, you bet. I would like to thank Matthew for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. Once again, I'm going to suggest, because I know I have a lot of Doctor Who fans in the audience, head on over to the show notes on my website, aaronbossig.com. In there, I have a link to his Who riffs. In my estimation, Doctor Who being riffed is already funny, but a guy like Matthew, who's already British, can riff it with extra authority. And that, to me, makes it a little bit funnier. Go on and check that out. And when you queue up some Who riffs, might I suggest instead of a nice cup of tea, get yourself some sci-fi coffee. Head on over to sci-fi-coffee.com and pick a blend that you might like. You can get 10% off your order by using the coupon code HUNGRY as in Hungry Trilobite. Now, we have a lot of great blends on sci-fi coffee, but I don't think we have one that really strikes as to the British humor type of blend. So let's work on that. In the meantime, you can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.